So if you'd like to, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. And there is a Bible app event uh, for this sermon. Here's what that means. That means if you have a smartphone and you have the YouVersion Bible app on it, and you click on the menu and select events, it should take you to Kerbinsville Alliance, and you can follow right along on the outline with the scripture there. If you happen to click on Hyde Wesleyan's link, which it also shows up, you might even get a better sermon. Who knows, right? But uh, yeah, go ahead and uh, open your Bible app if you have it. Click on the little menu and then click on the uh, Kerbinsville Alliance link, and that can be helpful to you. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today. We've been moving through a series on counterfeits, and we've talked about counterfeit wisdom, counterfeit meaning, counterfeit morality. We've talked about counterfeit intimacy, counterfeit security, and counterfeit knowledge. Today we're going to talk about counterfeit authority. I grew up on a farm about an hour from here in Jefferson County, and uh, I grew up hunting and doing all the things that farm kids do. And I can remember one time I was hunting, I was hunting deer. I had the 30, 40 Craig in my arms, and I was walking along. I was pretty little, and I bumped into a guy, and he said, who are you? I said, Steve Shields. So what are you doing here? I'm hunting. <laughs> he said, well, this is my property, and you're trespassing. I won't press charges if you get off my property right now. I was just a kid. I was probably too young to be hunting alone, but I knew this is my dad's farm. <laughs> I grew up here. And this either, maybe I'm over on the neighbor's farm, but that's not my neighbor. I, what, what is going on? But you know what I did? I said, okay. And I went home. I <laughs> went back to the barn, you know. Because his authority just kind of knocked me over. The way he spoke was like, okay, I'll do whatever you said. And what I did as a little boy there is I bought the counterfeit authority that he was projecting. And I think lots of us do that. In areas we might not realize, we don't get genuine authority, we get counterfeit authority. We're going to talk about that today. One of the characteristics of Jesus was that he spoke as one who had genuine authority. Over and over again, you see, and when you're reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, you hear them say at the end of when Jesus spoke, everyone marveled at him because he spoke not like the teachers of the law, but like someone who had authority. And today we're going to explore Jesus' authority, and maybe it'll help us recognize counterfeit authority when it comes along. So if your Bible's open to Luke 4, I want to begin reading in verse 31. I'll be reading seven verses there. We'll talk about that. Then we're going to look at Matthew, and we'll be back in Luke at the end of the game, okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 31. It's speaking of Jesus when it says, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed by his teaching because his words had authority. There's our word, right? Jesus' words had authority. In a synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Verse 35. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Now, before we dig too deeply into this, I just want to talk to you a little bit about counterfeit authority, what it is, and why people buy into it. Why are we taken in by counterfeit authority today in modern modern world we live in? And I think one of the reasons is what I'm calling the aura of experts. 
And notice the word experts is in quotes there. We live in a world of experts, a world of specialists, finance specialists, healthcare specialists, parenting specialists. How do you become a parenting specialist? I don't even know how that would work, right? About three years ago, I read a headline. I was with a group of people, and there was a headline that read, experts predict, now you've got to do the math on this, this is three years ago. Experts predict that the vast majority of cars on the road by 2020 will be self-driving automobiles. And it made me laugh out loud. <laughs> self-driving automobiles by 2020. And someone who was in that group heard me laugh at that, and they kind of rebuked me. You're like, how can you laugh at that? Don't you see what's happening? That's coming. That's going to be here. Those are experts. All the experts agree. Let's think about it for a minute. We're entering the end of March 2019. So that means we have nine months in order for the majority of cars in America to be self-driving automobiles. I'm still laughing. (laughs) I'm still laughing. It just isn't happening. You know why I laugh? For the same reason you laugh. Because through the years, I've come to realize that, quote, experts are often counterfeits in their field and not experts in their field. I have no doubt that self-driving cars are coming, but they're not going to be here in the majority in the next nine months. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that all experts are counterfeiters. Let me just say very clearly what I'm saying. I am saying that we often place an aura around, quote, experts, and when we do that, we sometimes buy into a counterfeit authority. Here's another reason we do it. Because of the myth of neutrality. I wish that was my title, I wish that was my phrase, but I borrowed it from an author who wrote a book back in the 80s of that title, The Myth of Neutrality. Let me tell you about his book. It wasn't that good a book, but he had a great thesis. His thesis was this. Society sees Christians as being biased, and it sees non-Christians as being neutral, and that's a myth. The myth of neutrality. So society says that because I am a Christian, I see things through a worldview that distorts my reading of reality. The thinking is that as a Christian, I am not neutral. And because of my Christian perspective not being neutral, it is unreliable, and it is certainly not authoritative. So if you have a person who is a scientist, and that person happens to be a Christian, then from this perspective of society, the Christian's perspective as a scientist is not as clear and accurate and reliable as maybe an atheist's perspective. Because irreligious people, society thinks, are, bi- are neutral, and religious people are biased. That thinking is misguided. It's thinking that hasn't thought it through all the way. It's thinking that doesn't realize that everyone has a bias. Everyone has a worldview, a lens through which they filter what they see and understand and the way they process reality. All of us have some kind of a bias. And non-Christians are no more neutral than our Christians. Irreligious people throw out anything that is divine, anything of God, anything that is miraculous, anything that is supernatural. They just throw that aside without even considering that it very well may be. And in so doing, they demonstrate their own bias concerning reality. You see, the idea that irreligious people are neutral, it's a myth. But have you fallen for it? Because when I read that book, I was probably 22 years old, and I realized, oh my goodness, I believed this for the past dozen years, that irreligious people are neutral and religious people are not. That's a myth, and it will cause you to accept a counterfeit authority. 
Let me give you a third reason we fall for counterfeit authority. It's because of what I'm calling religious rhetoric. And this is kind of the opposite of the myth of neutrality. Some people think that just because a person is a religious figure, their perspective is authoritative. That's foolish. I am a religious figure telling you that's foolish. (laughs) Some religious people have really whacked ideas. Some religious people, very religious people, have started their own religions that have ended up being suicide cults, and human beings have died needlessly. Religious rhetoric. Some religious leaders have taught their followers to refuse the simplest of medical care. And if you really trust God, you won't go to that doctor. And children have died needlessly. Religious rhetoric. Counterfeit authority. Many religious people teach that the end times are coming at a specific date, and they know the day and the hour. They got it right on their wristwatch. <laughs> Let me just remind you of Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And yet, over and over again, counterfeit authority shows up in a, ter- in a form of end-time alarmists that feel like they know what Jesus doesn't know. Hmm. Just because someone's religious, just because someone knows the Bible, just because someone has a large ministry, just because someone has some kind of a degree, that does not mean that their teaching is authoritative or that it should be regarded as such. Now, if you would, would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. And while you're turning there, give some consideration to this. What does genuine teaching, teaching that is genuinely authority, Authoritative, what does that look like? Well, in a scripture we read from Luke, do you remember it was his words, it was Jesus' words that were authoritative? What made Jesus' words authoritative? And if you're going to answer that question, maybe the thing to do is to look at Jesus' words. Maybe the thing for us to look at is the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' sermon. This is kind of his thesis. This is his, his, his charter, so to speak. And so we're going to look at different parts of this this morning, and we're going to see some characteristics of Jesus' teaching that also happen to be characteristics of real authority. And I want to say to you that they are real authority because at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus is done preaching it, the book of Matthew says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had, here it is, authority and not the teachers of the law. So let's look at Jesus' teaching and maybe pull some characteristics of authoritative teaching out. And the first one that I see as I did this this week is that genuine authority challenges your preconceptions. Now, I want to say counterfeit authority does too. So these characteristics are not like the grid through which you must filter all teaching. In fact, if you're looking for something like that, you should go back to the January podcast where we talked about genuine wisdom. That would be the place to find that kind of information. But here, these are just some characteristics that, that you see in Jesus' teaching, in his authoritative teaching. And that first one is that genuine authority challenges your preconceptions. I want to say this to you. I want you to hear this. That if your preconceptions are not being challenged, then you're probably not encountering anyone who has genuine authority in your life. Did you hear that? I'm going to say it again. If your preconceptions are not being challenged, 
then you're probably not encountering anyone who has genuine authority in your life. Jesus challenged preconceptions over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount. And he did it this way. He had this kind of, kind of speaking method that he used. He said this. He said, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Long ago it was written and people said, but I tell you. This is what you're believing, but I'm challenging this preconception by telling you this thing over here. He did it again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew 5 and look at verse 21. In your Bible, you'll see it says, Jesus is speaking. And he says, you have heard it said, it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You see what he's doing there? He's taking their preconception that I'm okay if I'm really mad at my neighbor or my brother or even a stranger. I'm okay to be just ticked off at them and have a lot of anger in my system about them. That's okay as long as I don't hit them. And Jesus says that preconception needs to be challenged. And he challenges it. He does it with other topics. Look down at Matthew 5, 27. In verse 27 and 28, he said, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He is challenging their preconceptions concerning their self-righteousness. And he's helping them to understand truth. It's a characteristic of authoritative teaching. It's a contrast, really. Counterfeit authority often does what the old-timers call tickling their ears, you know? Have you ever heard someone say of a preacher, or of a speaker, or of a teaching, ah, oh, they're just tickling people's ears? I've heard that so frequently through the years growing up, I thought it was in the Bible. It's actually not. I can't find it anyway. But here's what it means. Counterfeit authority massages your ego. Counterfeit authority waters down truth. Counterfeit authority tells you what it is you want to hear. It feeds your flesh. It bypasses self-denial. But genuine authority... It pulls you right out of your comfort zone. Again, you can see it in chapter 5. Look at verse 31 of Matthew 5. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That is not ear-tickling language right there. That's authoritative teaching. Here's another characteristic. Uh, Genuine authority speaks to your motives. It actually forces you to examine yourself. It speaks to the heart. It forces you to address what's beneath. And Jesus does this in the Sermon on the Mount in the first verse of chapter 6. In chapter 6, Jesus is about a third of the way through the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Is that what your motive is? So everyone will say, wow, what a good guy he is. He's a great guy. Genuine authority asks you questions about your motives. It asks you questions like, why don't I attend church gatherings more faithfully? Or why am I attending it the way I do? What is inside my heart that I have prioritized or deprioritized a church family? It makes you ask, why am I parenting the way I am parenting? And why am I not parenting the other way? Because we all have seen people that parent incorrectly. We've even seen what we might think of as good parents and good parenting who are doing it for the wrong motive because they're kind of living out their life the way they wish it had been through their child. And that's a path that's going to take you a bad place. What is your motive, Jesus is saying? Why am I helping out with this ministry at church? Why don't I help out with the other one? 
What is your motive? Genuine authority makes you look at why you do what you do and why you don't do what you don't do. And third, genuine authority forces you to consider eternity. Jesus does this in chapter 6. Before we look at verse 19, though, I want to tell you a few weeks ago, I visited an aging man. And I asked him this question. He, he didn't go to church. His family said, can you stop in and visit him? I stopped in and visited him. And I asked him the question that I ask anyone who is in that position. He's very aged. And I said to him, have you made your peace with God? And his answer made me sad. He said, well, you know, I believe whatever will be, will be. God's going to do what he's going to do. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And God's going to have to figure it out. I really have very little say in it. I believe that I'll die and whatever God has in mind, that's fine. I'll figure it out then. Oh, that's a very bad idea. I want to just pause here because some of you went, whoa. I went back to see him a couple weeks later and his position had changed just slightly. I'll be back to see him again. Pray that his heart changes. Genuine authority makes you look at how you're preparing for eternity. That's what I want to do for him. Uh, Look at Matthew 6, and we read this a few weeks ago. We're coming back to it again, where Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. He's talking about thinking about eternity, and genuine authority forces you to consider it. Do you see that? Can you see how genuine authority rattles your cage? The genuine authority makes you think about your perspectives and your presuppositions. And genuine authority makes you, makes you think about what's going on inside of you and your motives. And genuine authority helps you prepare. The real question is, how do you respond to genuine authority? When it comes into your life, how do you respond to it? Now, I want to tell you, uh, <laughs> as we look in this, I, I just want to be honest with you. As I said earlier, I am a person who resists authority just by nature. <laughs> uh, for years, I felt just like John Mellencamp. I fight authority, and it ticks me off that authority always wins. It's just how I am. So if this is hard for you, welcome aboard. It's hard for me, too, but it is essential for you and me to respond well to the authority of God. And so first, we need to respond with a mind that is open with a mind that is willing to drop our guard and willing to drop our presuppositions and willing to rethink things. When I first, when this reality first entered my mind, I was a teenager at Mahaffey Camp. I'd been going to Mahaffey Camp for a few years and one of my youth leaders, who was a college student at Clarion University at the time, um, his name was Bill. Bill came to Mahaffey. He was going to spend a week at Mahaffey. I liked Bill a lot. So he and I were hanging out together. It was a about 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday. The first service was going to start at 7. And Bill said this statement. He looked at the, at the tabernacle where the service was going to be, and he said, I can't wait for that first service to start. He said, I cannot wait to hear what God has to say to me, what he wants me to do, and what changes he has in mind for me to make. And I can remember my teenage mind went, that's really weird. <laughs> but it kind of stunk stuck in my head that that's what I should be doing, that, that a powerful response to genuine authority is a mind that is open to what that authority might say to me. 
So maybe the first thing we need to do when it comes to the genuine authority of God is to open our minds. And the second thing we need to do is have a heart that's willing to look inside your soul. This December, a group of us went to Altoona to see Dr. Rob Reamer's soul care. Pastor Steve sold it hard, and so a number of us went to that. And all of us experienced authoritative teaching. And all of us experienced a measure of transformation. I've talked to other people who've gone to soul care because I've been to soul care in Boston and in Grove City and in Pittsburgh and in Altoona. You know, it's like Sam I am. I would go to soul care in a box and I would go to soul care with a fox, right? I like the soul care conference. It's the most powerful conference I've ever been at. I've talked to other people who've gone there and say, meh, meh, I don't know. It didn't really do anything for me, Steve. Not a lot of people. Very few people go to soul care and come out with that mentality. And I scratched my head about that, and I thought, what's the difference between them and me? Why is it that they're not getting stuff out of here? And I think one of the answers is this. Some people go to soul care without being willing to look deep inside their soul. (laughs) Looking inside your soul can be frightening. I mean, I have good friends who cling to alcohol and other drugs, and I think that one of the main reasons for some of them is They're afraid to look inside their soul. And I don't think you have to cling to alcohol and drugs to realize I'm afraid to look inside my own soul. But you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus would not say things that make you look inside if he were not going to help you as you discover what is there. He's not that kind of Jesus. So you can look at your own failures, things you've done in the past that you're deeply ashamed of because God is with you as you look at those. And you can look at the evil that you sense inside your heart that comes out at times that you never expected that would come out. You can look at that because Jesus protects your heart as you look at it. And you can look at your sin because the Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, is inside of you. You can look into your own darkness because the light of the world looks with you. And you don't have to be afraid. When godly, authoritative teaching leads you to look inside yourself, look inside yourself. Don't be afraid. And I have a heart that's willing to look inside. How do you respond to genuine authority? With a will that's ready to surrender to God. Um, I want to spend some time talking about this demonized man. So if your thumb is still in Luke chapter 4, I'm going to go back and read that again. Uh, You know, Jesus said these words and the people said, wow, we've never heard anyone who teaches this way. He teaches with authority. And then in the synagogue, it says in 433, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the demon threw the man down before them all, and it came out without injuring him. So Jesus sends this demon out of this man. Now, I want you to listen to what Jesus says elsewhere about this kind of thing. It's in Matthew chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. It's pretty short. Just listen to it. 1243, if you do want to turn there. It says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, and that's just what happened, right? When an impure spirit goes comes out of a person it goes through arid places that means dry places seeking rest and does not find it 
And then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied. Hear that word, unoccupied. Swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And a final condition of that person is worse than a first. So I have to ask, did Jesus really do this man a favor when he cast that demon out of him? I mean, if one demon is bad and Jesus sends that out and all that happens is it gets seven more and comes back with seven worse ones, how is that helping him? How is that helping the person? And here is the answer. If the person refuses to accept God's authority, then indeed he is worse off. But if the person surrenders to God, if he allows God's spirit to fill him, then the demon will not find the house empty, (laughs) unoccupied. And he will find no place there. Do you hear the difference? It's a matter of whether you have a heart that is ready to surrender to God. So what authority do you respond to? (laughs) There's got to be someone when I say, what authorities do you respond to who says, none? If that's your answer, then the authority you're responding to is yourself. And I just want to tell you, we all think that's a bad authority for you to respond to, right? You're not a good authority. God is. Or is it one of the things that we mentioned earlier? Is it the, quote, experts? Do you find yourself when you hear experts, someone say, experts say that Christianity is. Experts say that religion is a psychological crutch. Experts say that there's a lot wrong with religion. It spoils everything. Have you kind of let that affect your thinking? If you have, you're accepting a counterfeit authority. Or is it the neutral thing? The myth of neutrality? I, I, you know, I don't know if I can trust religious people. I, I really want to trust someone who maybe is a little more logical or scientific or objective in their thinking. No one, no one, no one is without bias except Jesus. He is the only one that is without bias. Or for you, is it the religious person? Listen, Jesus does not want you to have religion. He wants you to have him. And he wants to have you. I want to pray that you will look to him as your authority. So as I pray, if you're comfortable doing so, would you please stand? Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your love for us. How you love us, it is amazing. It's amazing that you're jealous for us. It's amazing. It's amazing that you, God, would care for us. But you do. You demonstrate your own love in this while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you show us your compassion and your grace over and over again. You so loved us that you sent your only Son, that whoever trusts in him would not perish but have eternal life. It is because of that great love you have for us, God, that we can trust your authority and we can surrender to your authority. Do not let us believe the counterfeit authorities that would tell us that's a bad idea. They are fools. They are fools. May we submit ourselves to your authority today and through our lives. In Christ's name, amen.